This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. As always, my name is Jake, and I'm alone today in my garage looking at some dusty rafters and stuff. I'm alone because as a special gift to you, our loyal followers, our friends, our Patreon patrons, our colleagues who have other podcasts who've stuck with us through the entire month of Sismus, rather than do a segment and then an interview, we're doing two interviews back to back with two men I have a tremendous amount of respect for Gene Jones and Jason Douglas. Uh, one of the things I respect most about these men is their dedication to the craft, their workmanship, their effort. They're just awesome guys. And honestly, it's very fun to be able to explore that. I know that we have tons of creative fans and listeners out there who are either creating art or are contemplating creating art. And these are great guys to use as an example when it comes to any kind of creation. Because while it is artistic expression, it is work. You put in the work. You are prepared when you come in. Like we talk about in my interview with Jason, I had three pages of notes I was ready to go in and we just talked about everything. We talked about stuff I never expected, but there was no way in hell I was going to show up for Gene or for Jason with them dedicating their time to me, giving me their attention, sacrificing on other opportunities, and I wouldn't be prepared. And I would really encourage you, if you're ever doing any of these kind of projects, please do not to get on a soapbox or anything. So we'll start off Sismus with a great interview with Gene Jones. And so this is Slashers, at least the interview portion of it, that I still don't know how to introduce. My name is Jake, and with me is my esteemed colleague, Gene Jones. I'm so excited to have you on, sir. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Jay. I actually rewatched Sacrament this morning just to get ready for this oh. interview, and I really like that movie. I do, too. It, it turned out awfully well, and it... It, it did me a lot of good as an actor. No Country or Old Men brought me some better auditions than I'd been having, but Sacrament actually brought me work. Yeah. And one yeah. of the things I think, and, you know, I, I was contextualizing this because obviously I'm watching it for your screen time because I was wanting to prepare for this interview. And you are Jaws in that movie. You don't come out from the shadows until 31 minutes in and the patience of that pacing, because after 31 minutes, it it's lightning fast. It's a blitzkrieg till the end. Uh, yes. It's so good. You get to be Jaws. How exciting is that? <laughs> pretty, pretty wonderful. Yeah. And so one of the things I love about that movie, I also watched Dementia and I've watched Hateful Eight and you get to play a Red Dead Redemption. I've got, you get to play like these kind of gritty, fun characters that are like oh, meaty. Yeah. And then insist you are not that at all. Is that juxtaposition fun? Uh, yes, yes, it is. And uh, I, I know people people don't know what to expect uh, when they people who hire me without knowing me. Yeah, you know they're they're a little standoffish when I come onto the set for the first time. You know, but you know I'm there to work, and so we work. That's great. And so you had worked with Tyler on Texas Cotton, which kind of yes. went into Cyst. How was the Texas Cotton yeah. experience? Because it sounds like that was a, a whirlwind with all the locations and everything. It was. And it, it was great fun. And it was about the nicest bunch of people I've ever seen on a crew, actors and writer and director. I, I had not met any of them. I didn't know George Hardy's troll story. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know his backstory, you know. And they were just great fun to work with and to hang out with. And and uh, several of them were in the cyst. Yeah. And I wanted to make cyst just 
to be back with that bunch of people again. Which is so interesting, the organic nature, uh, not just the organic matter in the cyst, but what I'm talking about, like how synergistic it was that you all got together because I'm talking to Travis, I'm talking to Tyler, and it's like these just, you guys wanted an excuse to come back together. That's got to be so refreshing compared to like casting calls and doing the same, you know, line reading stuff. Yes, yes. I love it when the phone rings and somebody offers me a job. But I also uh, love it when show business works the way it's supposed to work, which is I have an audition. I prepare for it. I go in and do it the best I can. And I either get it or I don't. And if I don't, I was usually beat out of it by somebody who was better suited for the thing. And, you know, I, I like show business, the steps in show business, too. I'm one of the rare actors who will tell you that he enjoys auditions. I really enjoy auditioning. Yeah. Is it the kind of a competitive nature that you have? Yes. Yes. And uh, you have to have a little bit of the killer in you to enjoy it. But I do. And I I really I couldn't teach an acting course and, and I at all. But I know the most important thing for me to know, which is how I get ready, what it takes me to prepare, the steps I have to go through physically and mentally to, you know, go in and hit the mark and and have it memorized and do it. And, you know, I I like that. It's kind of like setting traps, you know. Oh, I like that analogy. Who am I going to catch in my trap, you know? And I also like that you talked about the physicality because a lot of people, I feel, disregard that element when they're doing an audition. Well, a lot of a lot of movie directors and casting people, if they see any theater credits on your resume, you walk in and they tell you, now don't do anything. Yeah. Which is exactly the wrong thing to tell you because it will freeze up an actor up and make him tense and pull him in. And they told me not to do anything. And I, well, I I won't go through my whole entire dull process, but uh, there's a point about halfway through the process where when I have my lines under control, I get up out of my chair and start moving around and planning movement, small movement, of course, but movement to show that I'm, still alive. Yeah, that's a good point. And Making sure you have a pulse is ideal. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm still alive. And uh, and a lot of people don't bother memorizing scripts. And I always memorize. Yeah. I memorize the audition piece or two or three pieces, however many there are. It just frees you up to act. It frees you up to look at somebody and, you know, look at something besides, you know, they see something besides the top of your head reading a paper, yeah. you know. And uh, I, I have actor friends who say, oh, I'm not going to memorize it till they pay me. Well, they don't get paid very much. Yeah, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. I think my batting average is better than theirs. Usually. Yeah, I think that you also, you're acting. You're not reciting at that point. You get to engage no, in no, subtlety. No, no, no. And, and for some reason, and, and some acting teachers actually suggest this. I, I hear every once in a while, it says, Oh, you should always uh, carry your script, and and uh, you, that way you plant the idea. Well, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm good with the script in my hand, but wait till you see me without the script. You know, oh, and 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 uh, that that's just hogwash. I mean, you know, the day never comes when they see you without a script because yeah. you don't get the job. You know, it's almost like acting like with a crutch, like oh, look, I uh, this yes, impediment. Exactly. I need. 
exactly. And um, anyway, I enjoy auditioning. Uh, I I am not sour. I'm not burnt out. <laughs> I, I'm having a pretty wonderful time. Actually. That's awesome. And also your method seems to suggest that you're showing people that you have the process down of being an actor. You have preparation yes. down. You have subtlety. You have analysis. You have those things that go into your character. You're not just sitting there wasting their time. Reading yes, and I'm, read. I'm showing them I will come to the set ready to work. Uh, the, the interesting thing about Sacrament, and it was interesting to me and Ty anyway, yeah. uh, was that the interview scene, which was the first thing I shot, uh, was 18 pages of script. And it was a, originally 18 minutes long. And they cut it down to 12 for the yeah. movie. It, it's, it's 12 minutes in the movie. But I memorized it. And I did the what you saw in Sacrament was pretty much the first take that we did. That's amazing. Of the 18 pages. And it kind of surprised me. It surprised Ty. But the great thing it did was because I was in pretty good control of it. Yeah. It let the congregation know that they could answer. They could talk. Yeah. And they could feed me. And I, I wanted them on my side while I did this interview with the city boy. Absolutely. And they they came in and they stood up and they sang out and they, uh, it was pretty thrilling actually. One of the, one of the most best experiences I've ever had as an actor actually. And it was and it was the congregation coming acting with me. Yeah, and that command of the source material gives you the opportunity to engage yes. in that because you always yes. have an anchor point. No matter how far the other person deviates, you know how to keep the script moving, how to keep the yes. scene moving. That's awesome. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, and and when they started chiming in, oh, I just I lit up inside. I thought, whoa, we're on to something now. And Ty did too. And if we had stopped every three minutes and chopped it into bite-sized bits, they could not have answered me or played with me. Yeah. And the pacing that you work with, and it's also pacing that you had insist where you have a patience about you. And usually I'm very impatient when it comes to film. You know, you have enough distractions in your daily life. If it's more than 90 minutes, don't waste my time. Right. But I love the pace that you have in all of your movies in dementia as well. In hateful, you, you stop, you calm, you command the screen. Is that like a conscious tactic that you have? I mean, because it's not conscious. It's just me. It's just my rhythm. It's Gene Jones getting through life yeah. <laughs> you know uh, it, that's that's a, 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 just a thing that i bring and as far as um we we did a lot of uh, festivals with sacrament and uh went to london went to toronto and uh, austin and memphis and a bunch of places and uh, people would always ask well, well you must have studied jim jones a lot to do this and i didn't waste a minute studying jim jones because I knew that I could never be that. I was too old to be Jim Jones. I didn't look like Jim Jones. I didn't sound like him. And there was no reason to try to tie myself in a knot trying yeah. to be Jim Jones. And I thought my job in the film was to be the guy that desperate people would follow out into the jungle. And whom would you follow out into the jungle? Well, you would follow your granddad out yep. into the jungle. And I tried to be everybody's granddad. Very paternal. And you're leading them. Uh, and this you know, might sound off in the wind for a horror podcast, so bear with me. I, mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with Inherit the Wind, the play yes. and the film about the Snopes monkey trials. Yes. Your performance reminds me of Spencer Tracy when he's doing... Oh, man. Oh, 
Well, yeah. well, where, well, where can I send you a bottle of booze? I, I, that's, that's about the nicest thing anybody's ever said. It's a, it's a beautiful performance because he knows in that he's not advocating facts. He's advocating policy and essence and like the truth, the veritas. And so you're not worried about the guy who's interviewing you. You're not worried about the ticky tack facts because you're putting him on trial in front of your congregation and playing him against it. Did like attorneying or anything like that ever, was there any, any inspiration in that scene besides, uh, like you said, just playing the granddad? Uh, I, I, I keep going back to, to the congregation feeding me. Yeah. And that's how I say it. They fed me. Come on, come on. We're with you. We're rooting for you. You know, we'll, we'll show these city guys, you know, what's what, you know, and, uh, uh, it was just, it was thrilling to act with because of them. Yeah. And that confidence that you displayed is amazing because it juxtaposes so nicely with the insecurity where you're begging people to kill themselves. I mean, that's an amazing juxtaposition there. Uh, and that was that fun to explore as an actor? Oh, yes. 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 Um, and, uh, Sacrament was was a pretty wonderful experience. And I'd never met Ty, of course. And I made a, this. This is so amazing. This will sound stupid. But uh, when when we'd finally been on the set a few days, I asked Ty, why did you call me to audition? And my agent did not submit me for that. Oh, really? Ty called up one day and said, I want Gene Jones to make a video for this film. And uh, and as always, I want to see the script you know, before I go to much trouble. And I did see the script and I thought it was really solid. And uh, I, I asked. Ty, how did you get the idea to audition me for this? This is not like No Country for Old Men. And I, I'm certain he had seen No Country for Old Men, but but he didn't have the idea, he said, until he said, oh, late one night, I'm sitting up just browsing around and, and I see the Louis C.K. show on. And I was in a comedy sketch yeah. with Louis. The pharmacist in the in the drugstore sketch where the the pharmacist and the old lady start Absolutely. yelling, you know, "How's your bowel movement? You know, <laughs> was it runny or was it solid?" You know, and Louis sitting there waiting for his prescription. But anyway, uh, Ty saw that and he said, "I just had the idea that that I, I should see you." And it makes no sense to me, but uh, I, I loved it too. And it's amazing. Like, you know, you had uh, some great other comedy appearances. You were in the Chappelle show, which is awesome. Amy yes, Schumer. Yes. I mean, you've got Amy to work Schumer. with some awesome people. Uh, it, yes, can you yes. talk about your comedy uh, chops? Because you use comedy to a great effect and cyst. Yes, uh, I, I enjoy comedy. And I always thought uh, back before I had any film career at all, I used to think, well, uh, you know, when, when I get going in films, I'm going to do comedies. You yeah. know, that's going to be my stock in trade. And it's what I did in theater mostly. And gotcha. I was in theater for 20 years or so before I ever got near films. Yeah. I didn't have an agent. Gotcha. And I could I could go to open calls for theater. And, and I got some, a lot of theater, in fact, through open calls. But I couldn't get near films. They don't have open calls. I was sorry to yeah, find out. Very elitist and like exclusionary. Yes, they were just snobs. And, and uh, the only film I've ever been, the only director anybody's ever heard of uh, who would uh, hire me during those theater years was Ken Burns. Gotcha. And I did Civil War uh, voices for the Civil War for him. That was my first Ken Burns. In the 90s, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, early 90s and uh he's been awfully 
good to me. Um, I've done probably 10 films for Ken Burns. That's amazing. And so that, again, the synergy here, you're working with Tyler Russell over and over again, work with Ken over and over again, building those relationships and kind of cutting the the pretense and being able to get to like, you know, actual work and knowing your method. That's huge. And I think that speaks to, you know, your qualifications as an actor, well, right? It's something every everybody should know his own method and yeah. his method will be different from mine, but you've just got to do it over and over and figure it out. And I figured it out during those, those lean years when I was doing nothing but theater and uh, going to open calls and auditioning for strangers and doing monologues for a room full of people I'd never met and had no idea who they were because they never introduced themselves. And um, but but what all that taught me, it made me very brave because I learned how to audition, how to prepare I learned to memorize. I learned when to get up out of the chair. I learned when to move. And so, and I became fearless. You know, I, uh, I would have auditioned for the Pope or Jesus or anybody. I, I was, I wasn't afraid of anybody good. because I knew I was, I was doing good work. And that's very important. Like I always talk about the movie Rocky, right? Everybody's always like, that movie is probably the one time I care about somebody on their best day as a, you know, as a guy who employs people as somebody, I care about consistency. I care about somebody who I can rely upon. I care about that kind of methodology and the kind of approach mm-hmm. you're talking about, because the fact is mm-hmm. if you audition and your audition's great, you show up on the day, you've never read the script. You don't know you're blocking. You don't know it. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? And so with you, you have great credibility with each person you work with and you can just get in and go. And like with Sist, you had a really yeah limited shooting schedule you got a bunch done and we're out of there and everybody has the nicest things to say about working with you well um i well, that's good that's good to hear i um i i just i want to be solid i want to yeah. be dependable i and and i don't come in i never come into a project uh wanting to rewrite the script or wanting to tell anybody how to stage a scene I, you know i you know, let's try the way you have visualized it first and let's try it five or six more times. Mm-hmm. And then I may make a suggestion, but uh, I never come into something thinking, well, I'm going to fix this. You know, yeah. I'm going to show this. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I, I don't. Well, I think that confidence that you have because of your method makes you kind of unflappable. And one of the things that's really interesting about Sist, both Tyler and Travis, completely independent of each other when I did their interviews, talked about you and your strong recommendation when it came to your character having a scarf to kind of hide the yeah. goiter or the cyst or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about like having that kind of confidence on the set to you know people? Well, it was confidence with Tyler. I'd worked with Tyler and I wouldn't have suggested that to some a director I didn't know. Yeah. Probably, but uh, I knew Tyler, and uh, I don't know why we couldn't find it. But what I wanted was a big red Christmas scarf yes. that would call it call attention to this big ball on the back of my neck. Yeah, by by having reindeer or something on the scarf. And they did go shopping, and they didn't have long to shop, but they couldn't find a red one. But they found a gray one or something, and, and that's what we used. But, um, uh, you know, it was just my idea was if, you know, if you've seen it eight times before the payoff happens, the payoff is not much. 
Yeah, it goes to Jaws, right? Like if yes. you see Jaws in the very beginning, it's like, oh, it's just that damn shark again. But when you build it up and it's like, and also it adds to your character's neuroses, because if you yes. are that concerned about it, you're certainly not going to be like, hey, look at this giant thing on my neck that makes me look like quasi freaking Moto. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, uh, I, I, I just, I really wanted to do this uh, just to get back together with those people. Yeah. And I really like working Tyler. He is solid as a rock. George Hardy is probably the nicest person in show business. And, yeah. You know, can't can't be George Hardy. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, you know, Eva and Greg, and yeah, uh, I'm going to be interviewing Jason, who you also worked with on Texas Cotton. Yes. and yeah. you guys are just like I would love to watch a sitcom with you, just because I think you could the pace that it seems you guys are able to work with. You could be putting out content every other day. It seems. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'd love to, and I I've, I've got a little sitcom sampler pilot thing that's floating around and I haven't heard from it in a while. I don't know that it's going anywhere. Maybe it's not, but, uh, but that would be fun to get in a sitcom with people of that caliber. Yeah. And then also, you know, that kind of timetable you worked on with Cyst, uh, I mean, crunch time, because immediately after Cyst, quarantine and everything starts. And so, I mean, in terms of your work right now, this is your most recent credit that I'm seeing. Uh, is there anything it's that my you- most recent credit? Yeah. I had the virus. I had the virus. Oh, geez. I caught it in March. Uh, I have no idea how I caught it. But I was in the hospital three weeks, oh, and wow. uh, and and it was during that three weeks that show business shut down in New York, shut down, and yeah, it's scary times. So moving forward, yeah. are there any projects that you have you can talk about, or you know things that you're hoping to get into the works now that things are kind of leveling? I must not jinx it, but but there there is a major motion picture. All right, <laughs> uh, if I if I can make it till March, uh, I I think I'll get to do something with somebody that's amazing i'm happy to hear it and thank you i I can't say of course i'm not going to push you for it yeah i can't and so uh, one of the things i wanted to talk to you about because you're in a unique position when it comes to hateful eight hateful eight's gonna you know they're gonna do an extended version on netflix and do all this fluff it out and make it like a series and it seems that a lot of things, you have the Justice League and stuff doing that because filming, like you said, had stopped for so long that people are kind of almost going to the archives or going to what they have that they can recut and re-edit. Is that yeah. interesting to you as you know someone in film to see these things almost like hodgepodged or like recreated and extended? I, I don't know that I've seen any of that. I, you know, I've seen a few remakes and uh, I, I don't have anything against it. Um you know, I'm not against it in principle. I've, and then in terms of the streaming media as it exists now, I, when I'm looking at your, you know, relevant works, at least in the horror genre, you know, Sacrament's on Tubi, Uncaged is on Prime, and you're able to access an entire, you know, demographic of people who might not have been able to see these films in the past. Is, is that an exciting prospect for you just to be oh, able to sure. kind of... Of course, of course. And uh, to... Ooh, what was... The last time I was at a festival was Toronto two years ago, and it was for a film called Standoff at Sparrow Creek. Have you seen that? I have it's, not. It's I saw the credit on your stuff. Wonderful little thriller. Very tight, beautifully, beautifully shot. First time filmmaker. But we went to Toronto, and uh, and there were young horror fans that were waiting in line to see me go in, you know, and it was kind of startling. I, I thought, you know, who are they here for? 
and somebody said they're here to see you. And I said, this can't be true. These are college age people, you know, Yeah. but it was true. And, um, and they knew me from those films and uh, nobody brought up hateful aid or no country or anything. They brought up sacrilege. Which is, I mean, truly horror fans are like, we're very territorial. Like once we have decided you're one of our people, you are in the club forever. And that's something that's got to be fun to just see people follow you and kind of give you the benefit of the doubt, even if they don't know what the oh, project yes. is, they'll yeah, follow they you. Do. Yeah. yeah, they do. They do give me the And that's been, that's been very nice. A long time coming and, and very nice. So if, if we take Time Machine back to the 80s, when you, in you know, your stage career, and we say, hey, Gene, you're going to do a movie with a giant cyst monster. Do you think the you of yesteryear would believe that story? Or have you always been the guy who's just eager just to keep things active and keep going? Oh, I, I, would, I would have hoped that was true. I, I would not have believed it because I hadn't been near real movies back then. You yeah. know, I was still doing student films and stuff. But uh, I'm not a snob and never was. I belong to a comedy sketch group uh, back in the early 80s, you know, and uh, we did a little sitcom called Leave It to Jesus. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. That, that kind of thing. And uh, I played Edie Amin, you know, saying, you know, how can you treat your people so horribly? I love my people. They taste like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, I was never a snob. Yeah. And um, uh, I had a little club group, a little jazz group called the Savannah Sheiks. And, you know, we were doing little clubs in the village and stuff. It was fun. And I mostly had fun. And, and I, I never, you know, I, I was poor, but there was always something interesting to do. And uh, I, I love show business and I, I love the people I've met and worked with and it, the, the thing that is very much the same with film and theater that I really, really like. I like being in a room full of people, smart people, trying to figure out how to do something. Yeah. Boy, is that interesting to me. The you riddle, know, the right? Play, the playwrights I work with, Horton Foote and August Wilson. You know, I met these guys. I was in their plays, you know. Romulus Lenny, Laura's father. Did you know he was a playwright? I did not. Wonderful, wonderful writer, um, and he's he directed me in a couple of his plays. And so people used to ask me, you know, "Who's your favorite stage director?" And one of them was Des McEnough, who directed Big River, and he uh, has since directed Jersey Boys and a lot of, a lot of New York stuff. And um, you know he was he was he's kind of the D.W. Griffiths of stage directors, and he's always trying to figure out how to burn something up or blow it up or yeah. or you know set the curtain to fire or something. And I love that, love yeah. being in the room with Des trying to figure out how to you know set the set a fire. And the, and my other favorite director is Romulus Lenny, whose whose approach was always to see how little we can do, how still we can be. <laughs> You know, kind of distill everything can, down to the yes, simplest point. Yes. How long can we sit and talk and hold an audience? You know, and Des wanting to 
God, I was in a production of Elmer Gantry, uh, a musical version of Elmer Gantry at La Jolla Playhouse. Best directed. My God, there was a ring of fire. It looked like an oven burner yeah. that circled the stage. And this wow. was the this was Sister Sharon's great uh, revival tent that catches on fire, as it does in the novel and in the movie. You know, and he had us jumping back and forth over these these flames, and it was like an oven burner, a gas burner. <laughs> And there were firemen with hoses stationed all around the stage to put us out. You know, if we caught fire, as we jumped oh, over one of these things. <laughs> Holy God, was that fun. Uh, you know, uh, but I've, I've had a good time. You know, I've had a really good time. And I'm not sour and I'm not burned out. And I, I don't think I ever will be. I, I enjoy it. It sounds like you treat the act of acting as a gift. You know, it's you're eager to oh work in Hollywood. God, yes. Even yes. after all these years. How do you keep that kind of invigoration going? Well, I'm I'm careful about what I sign up for, for one thing. You know, Good it's point. that thing. I want to read the script, even if it's a student film, and I, I want to help a young filmmaker make his film. But if his script is no good, no. you know, no, I don't want to do it. So right away, I save myself a lot of trouble by not being desperate to act. And I'm not desperate to act. And, and I've gone a solid year without acting. And, and that's okay. I've done that before. Not often, but a couple of times. And, uh, and uh, I don't like uh, acting in Zoom situations. I don't like to watch Zoom theater or Zoom music or Zoom anything, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and I have actor friends who sit home, you know, and and work up monologues, and they get their friends to come in, and they will do a scene from Chekhov or something, you know, and they'll be in different rooms, and everybody will have their plants and books behind them, you know. And I, I, that that bores me. I don't want to see that. Very sterile, right? Yeah, yeah. And one thing that I think I wanted to touch on before I let you go today is, you know, I, I had talked about streaming and reaching a whole new audience. And then one of the things I liked when I did stage acting was the ephemeral nature of it. Like it is here. It is a precious moment in time and it is gone. You will never see that performance again. The very next night could be an entirely different performance. Yes. I, is that something yeah. that you enjoy or is that something that's kind of oh, sure. some people have a yes. somberness about it? Right. And they're almost like morose. Yes. at yes. the idea. Oh, I've got to go do it again. Oh, you know. Uh, one of the things that kept me fed and kept me alive during those bleak years was I spent almost three years downtown in a production of the Fantastics. Oh, really? Yes. Eight shows a week for almost three years. And I never got tired of it. Other, uh, you know, the other actors came and went, actors got sick, actors took vacations, new actors took their place, and life went on. We always did the eight shows. If we didn't have eight people in the audience, we still did a show. You there know? you go. And that was interesting to me. That was fun. And, and there's no acting school that, that tells you how to get your mind around the show that never closes. Yeah, right. And it almost never did close. It ran 40 years downtown, and then uh, they revived it uptown, and it ran six, seven years. Jeez almost, Louise. Yeah, 50 years, a total of 50 years in New York. <laughs> That's practically unheard of. It is unheard of. It's the longest running anything in American theater. That's I amazing. think the mousetrap in London is run long. Yeah. Uh, so uh, have you ever seen or been in a production of Noises Off? 
No, but I've seen it. I, I love it. Yeah. I, again, I'm completely alienating our horror audience, but as somebody who's a thespian, I have to talk to you about it because that's one of my favorite plays of all time because it shows to an actor the exact same material word for word is entirely different every time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's wonderful. It's a brilliant piece of writing. Yeah. And it's a like fourth wall breaking like I've very, very rarely ever seen. Yeah. So. In terms of behind the scenes or anything, is there anything about the act of uh, film versus stage that you'd like to highlight to maybe a layman who doesn't really appreciate the subtle differences or the glaring differences for that matter? Well, you you just have to be awake and aware. And the, the key to all of it is listening, listening. That's what an actor must do is listen and look and be aware and you can't drift in and out. And that's a little harder to do in film because the film set is populated. There's 50 people standing around who aren't acting yeah. with you. And uh, and they're trying not to make much noise. But you see them move. You see a microphone move. You see a shadow. You And you, and you have to you know, stay there. Stay in. Stay in. Listen, listen. Give, give, give. You know, and and that's that's very hard. Yeah, you're not waiting for your next line. You're reacting yeah. to the line before right. it. And that's something that's a huge difference. And and as you go, listen as you go. And don't sure. wait till the other person has stopped before you react and say. Yeah. We should see we should we should see you thinking. A hundred percent. Because your character wouldn't instantaneously know. And if they did, then they must have some precognitive ability, right? I mean, it just it's yes. so alienating to an audience because then it becomes yes. sterile. It's just connecting the dots. It's not going through a movement. Right. And that's why you that's why I don't fool with with backstory and something. You can't act the past and you can't act the future. You can just act now. It's always now exactly. when you're acting. The present. Yes. And that's one of the hard things, too, because especially on stage, showing the subtlety of an inner monologue, and you're very rarely going to have a script where you're doing a voiceover or a soliloquy in a modern piece. And so expressing what you're thinking about or reflecting on the future or fearing the past or what have you, it doesn't work. You need to be in the present because the audience needs to experience as you go, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and, and subtext and backstory are certainly worth doing. But only as they inform what can be played, what is in the script. And that's that's why I'm such a worshiper of the script. I almost never tinker with a script. I don't want to. And when you get the script for Cyst, it's a, uh, what is it, an hour and eight minutes of just pure all killer, no fillers. That's what I keep saying to everybody because I, yeah. I love this runtime. I mean, is it exciting to you to see yeah. a script where you're like, there's no fat to trim? There's, yes, yes. It's awesome. Oh, yes. Sure. Sure. From the beginning to the end, I mean, and your character, you're a, uh, a you know, it, there's something to be said when there can be a giant pus filled monster. And I can still remember that I saw you in the film. You steal the show in a certain regard. And, and also you have a huge element, spoiler territory, you know, uh, mm-hmm. how fun is that? I mean, can you just briefly touch on the you know shooting set before I let you go? Well, I think I was in, I can't remember if there were seven or eight scenes. I think eight. Yeah. But uh, we shot them all in a day, and um, you know, no time to no time to dawdle, and um, you know, you have to to um, subtly but firmly, surely escalate the tension for the next the seven scenes that yeah. follow the first scene. You know, especially your character because you're getting more and more impatient. You're like, damn it, yes, I deserve yes. to have my yes. appointment. 
Yes, uh, like uh, like the scene in No Country for Old Men, you know, and the and the Cohen brothers were, uh, you know, gave that absolutely useless direction of now don't do anything, <laughs> but uh, which is what they always tell people if they see theater on your resume and you're auditioning for film, they say now don't do anything, you know, which is exactly the wrong thing to say <laughs> because it freezes you up. And but I I knew it's five minutes worth of talk. Nobody's going to move. Nobody even walks around. We just stand there talking. Yeah. And I knew that the, there had to be very small incremental escalation of worry about this guy. Yeah. Because you're not and, instantaneously uh, suspicious. You're not instantaneously on no, the offensive. No. And I, I thought this has got to go slowly uphill, but it has to move. It has to go uphill. Yeah. And that was the acting problem in it for me was to was to listen and take him in so that I could honestly move uphill. And that also goes to your preparation in terms of knowing who you are, knowing your abilities and knowing where you need to get. Because if you instantaneously blow your wad and you're, oh, I'm trepidatious and terrified, you can't go beyond that. So you have to know where the benchmark is or where the goalpost is, right? Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Gene, this was an absolute pleasure. I really in love. Nice. I enjoyed this so much. I didn't think I had two of these in me today. And we didn't cover the same territory. You'll be happy to know. That's perfect. <laughs> so, I always try and so there you go. find what you want to talk about. And I could tell, like, I saw, I done a bunch of research on you and I could see, you know, the theater experience. And that's such a unique experience because horror and theater are very rarely overlapping, you know, for most people, for the layman, right? You can find your theatrical horror and it's beautiful when you can find mm -hmm. it but to find it and be able to introduce my audience to you and a whole different side of you is so exciting to me uh, if you ever have anything to promote please come back i would Thank love you. to share our audience with you Thank because you. They're if, love if it. i ever work again i'll have something <laughs> to promote so uh. i'm already talking to travis about cyst too i have a treatment in the works and he's guaranteed me a cameo so i think we might even be sharing a set together in the future uh, oh that'd be nice that'd there be we fun. Go. thank you so much jake i really enjoyed this all right stay safe my friend and Okay. Bye-bye. And that was Gene, and Gene is awesome. I think we can all agree. That was a very fun interview. I felt elated afterwards. I was just glad that somebody knew what the fuck Inherit the Wind was. And so now, here we go to Jason Douglas. This is Slashers, at least the damn interview portion. I still don't know how to introduce. My name is Jake. With me for the first time, Jason Douglas. God damn it, I'm excited to talk to you, sir. How are you today? Wow, Jake, that's quite an introduction, man. I hope I can live up to that. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm surviving. And, um, uh, you know, we're just we're just making it out here in Texas. So I'm actually very sad that we're not able to do this interview in person. COVID aside, because I heard from uh, Ian Sinclair that you have the best handshake in anime. Is that true? Uh, I don't know. You know, he likes to tickle my palm when I shake his hand <laughs> and, I, I'm, and I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? And so I sort of wiggle away and he's like, that's all. No, I don't know. I, I have no idea what he's talking about. Lately, I've just been doing like fist bumps and elbow bumps. Yep. But, you know, I'm also a hugger. I've always been like a bring it in kind yeah. of a guy. And I realized that's like not really appropriate anymore. <laughs> not sure it was ever, frankly, appropriate. Uh, so I'm I'm learning. I'm learning to keep my 
my COVID distance and my appropriate inter- human interaction. Distance. But here's the thing. When a six foot four guy comes in for a hug, you just let him yeah. hug you because you're afraid. That's what everybody's been doing your whole life. Could be. Yeah, that could be it too. <laughs> I, I've always, for me, I, you know, you're right. I'm six four. And, and for me, the funny thing is always like when I'm walking down a corridor and I'm just like, I turn the corner and someone's coming the other way and they get spooked. Right. Because oh, yeah. they're not expecting to see like uh, coming in. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't know. I've been living with that my whole life, but I just find it funny. It's amusing to me. Well, I, as somebody who gets to play around as a character who is the god of destruction, that's got to be fun in your sure. real life to have some sense of foreboding, albeit not a purple cat person. Um, right. I have I have a lot to say about Dragon Ball Super because I had I had not animated in like 15 years. <laughs> Dragon Ball Super comes in my life. And I watched everything. And yeah. I have a, a very serious question asked. So you, yeah. your character, Beerus, Weiss, are the most beloved new additions to any show I've ever seen. You have characters like Scrappy-Doo and people who just talk trash and be like, oh, it shits McGillicuddy right. who comes in in season seven and ruins everything. This, you this, guys this, are beloved. <laughs> What's it like being able to come into a project? That the first episode of Dragon Ball aired February of 1986. So you come out ridiculous. 30 years later and are just stealing yeah. the show. How is that? Right. Well, it's, it's, well, I think it's pretty cool. What happened was, of course, there was a ton of anticipation about new Dragon Ball, like legit new Akira Toriyama yeah. Dragon Ball content. At the time, Dragon, uh, Battle of the Gods come, came out, there hadn't been in anything new in like 17 years, yeah. uh, you know, unless you count GT, which some people do, some people don't. But Toriyama wasn't, I don't think he was very involved in that. So uh, there was a, there was a lot of love for the franchise that was already there uh, that I think would have been there had we, whether those characters had been there or not. But I think what was cool is that because Toriyama was involved, he got really involved in like almost re not rebranding, but like really giving it new life. He wanted it. I think he wanted to feel fresh and not just a to be continued from, you know, the original material. And um, so in, in, in some sense, you know, for, for, for hardcore longtime Dragon Ball fans, you get all those characters that you love uh, and, and, and many of the same voice actors back for those who, who enjoy following the English voice actors. But uh, for, for us, I think, it, and for, I think for Toriyama, it was a great opportunity to like create and expand his own universe yeah. um, and create some really cool characters and for him to feel fresh. So I felt like when he created Beerus and Weiss, I feel like he was really invested in it personally and they weren't just kind of like one-off characters. And so I don't know, I, I, it, but from a, from a standpoint of just kind of being able to kind of hop into a, a pre-existing franchise where, where all the characters are so well-known and loved and, and to kind of get to play in that, it's really just, it's really fantastic. I mean, you know, I'd like to think that I contributed something, but the fact of the matter is Beerus would be there, whether Jason Douglas was voicing him or, or someone else. And so um, I always feel like, you know, my job is just to kind of like fill out the contours of those characters as best I can and contribute whatever approach or, you know, interpretation I have in a way that hopefully is true to what, uh, what, you know, what the creators intended. So, uh, but it's been amazing. I mean, we, you know, we, we, when we did Dragon Ball, um, the battle of gods, I think we did a big premiere in New York. And then when, when we did Broly, we went out and premiered that in LA. And we, I mean, the, the theaters were just packed yeah. and everybody wearing Goku hair or whatever, something, there was nobody in the room that didn't have something on that was Dragon Ball related. And I've never seen that. Like in my career, I've done a lot of anime, um, but I've spent a lot of time doing other projects, but I've never been on a title that had that much just baked in fan 
engagement from the start. Oh yeah. And so that's been a, it's been a real ride for me. And I know for Ian as well. I mean, Ian was a fanboy, like he grew up watching Dragon Ball. So for him to be able to come in and play a, a major character and, you know, between Ian, between Ian and me, he has 75% of the lines that, you know, when we <laughs> share scenes, because yeah. he's all, he's also Mr. Exposition. I mean, it's yep. a cool character, but he's like the, you know, he's sort of the logical transcendent figure that, you know, gets to explain to us what the hell's going on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so fun for him. But yeah, it's it's been it's been a real ride. Yeah. And honestly, like before Battle of the Gods comes out, the last time that Dragon Ball even comes near a theater is Dragon Ball Evolution, which is reviled. Like, I love trash cinema. Dude, I can't right. do that movie. When you take a beloved franchise like that, you know, it's just like the the Airbender movie. Oh, that would hurt the soul, didn't the it? Yeah. Yeah, it hurt on a number of levels. You know, you're rooting for M. Night Shyamalan because you think there's a really great filmmaker in yeah. there somewhere. And like, you know, and then but but when you when you have such well-drawn characters that are well understood, that's yep. the thing. Fans understand these characters and they it's personal. Yeah. And 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 for some filmmaker to come in kind of sideways and go, oh, I'm, we're gonna, we're gonna cast it with stars and there's gonna be special effects mm-hmm. and we're gonna do all this. And, and no, you, you you so much of especially in an animated series, so much it's 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 not a tangible thing that you can just easily pick it up and and yeah. and, and put it, you know, and do it as a live action. Otherwise it would have been um, live action to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't, it's, it's a, forgive the phrase, but it's a, it's a cartoon universe. Like yeah. we see it in, 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 in it, it's, it's an art. It's, we, that's the way we see it. It's like a dreamscape. Of course. And you can't just plop that down into a very pedestrian, realistic scenario. So how do you do that? You, you can stylize it. You can go in a highly stylized way that, that really amps it up. And then it starts to look like a David Lynch movie or something, right? Yeah. Like there's a, I think there's always a way to do it, but it works so well already, like as it is. And I, I think the box office numbers of the three movies in particular from Battle of Gods to Broly prove that, Hey, like it's, it's already there, you know, like as it is, you know, to, to, to do a live action version is almost just like a gimmick. 100%. Goku in real life, you know, like, you know, he's got skin tone, right? Exactly. They didn't go from Ang to Ong. And I'm like, hold up. It's the main guy's name. How did you fuck that up, bro? How do you not know that? (laughs) Watch the series. You know, but I don't know. They think I don't know what it is. It, it it's a it's a cynical attempt to cash in on something that was already not broken in the first place. You know, so I suppose if they wanted, they could have made a live action or not a live action, but like a cinematic movie yeah. of the last air. You know, the Airbender or whatever. Of course, but uh, well, like, but anyway, taking it from two D animation to three D animation, that's still like the same realm. But this is like, yeah, it, this is my perspective of the filmmakers because you take an art medium and you put it into a physical medium. It's like taking Guns and Roses, and then you have somebody beatboxing, and then getting upset at yeah. the people beatboxing, being like, "Oh, well, it's your fault for not liking it." I'm like, this isn't the same fucking thing, right? Yeah, it's like when Metallica does those those <laughs> orchestral <laughs> arrangements, and it's yeah. like. I, I know you guys feel good doing that and it's cool. I'm glad, you know, like y'all enjoy it. And I know they have a lot of fans that do it, but like, you know, 
don't give yourself tendonitis patting yourself on the back, right? I'm a kill them all guy. And yeah. I don't think those guys were even in, like remotely thinking of like, I wonder what this would sound like orchestrated with, you know, oh, strings yeah. and, you know. One of my favorite but, things ever is getting to see Danzig several times live performing with Misfits too, as far as like Doyle or whatever. And one of them, he's like, oh, right, no, I'm going to do Green Hell. A song that Metallica fucking ruined. And everybody just like blows up. And so Metallica is one of those bands where it's like, I totally, I, I am so in tune with what you're saying. Where I'm like, I like you, yeah. but I also like to hate you. Is that fair? Exactly. Exactly. But don't get me wrong. I was a Metallica fan, but it, they lost me at a certain point. And then. Was it called Saint know, Anger? That's it. <laughs> Therapy, the album. It, yeah. It came well before that, brother. Okay. I was one of the first ones in line to buy the Black Album the day it came out. Nice. And we, uh, my, my, my buddies and I, we, we, you know, we had seen them many times and, and, uh, we sat in my living room or wherever I had my stereo and listened to it all the way through. And when it was over, we just kind of looked at each other and we're like, wow, what was that? Yeah. And we were expecting, I don't know. You know what I think? I think we were expecting death magnetic, which is what came much later. Um, and instead we got the first chapter of a totally different, yeah, you know, they got Bob rocked. And so anyway, this is a totally different interview. I love it. No, it's important. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but anyway, learning about you as music. a person is the coolest shit. Cause like, so you just took us on a time capsule to 1991. Can I take you on a time capsule back to what is it? 83. When you did your first oh. show, let me see this. Aura Battler Dunbean. What you Aura had Battler done by. So let me tell you what I was doing in 1983. Yeah. In 1983, when Aura Battler Dunbine first came out, I had no idea what that was. And I was probably, I was, I was like a nine or 10 year old kid riding my bike around my neighborhood in suburban Houston. But, um, when I recorded that 93, 2000, so I probably 10, 15 years later is probably roughly speaking here is when I did my work in the dub. So I'm not as old as that would suggest, but what happens on IMDb is that when that stuff gets listed, they post it according to like when it first was you know, released. Gotcha. Um, I was going to say, know, you seem so, a little too young to be doing it for this long. I don't know. That would make me like 65 or 70 or something. I'm, I'm, I'm a good looking 70 year old, <laughs> like 70 year old, if that's the case. But anyway. Yeah. So, cause I was going to say, if that was the case, the gap between that and your first on screen, cause what I was able to track for first on screen would be about 2000 with red ink or was it Atlanta murders? I don't know which name it went by, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's funny. Mission red ink, man. That's cr That was a little, uh, a very strange, uh, independent film that was shot in Houston. And my good buddy, Lou Temple was actually in that as well. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Lou, but he's well known as, as, uh, from his days working as Banjo and Sullivan. He was Adam Banjo and uh, wow. the Devil's Rejects. Badass. But he and I were buddies. Yeah, he and I were buddies back in Houston, Texas when, when uh, we go way back. That's a whole other story. You should have him, by the way, if you haven't interviewed him. But uh, yeah, that was Red Ink. Uh, and then a few years later, my first real significant feature was like a walk-on role in a movie called Secondhand Lions. Yeah. With And my scene was with another well-known voice actor named Damian Clark, who is well-known as Handsome Jack in Borderlands. And, and uh, he and I actually did Great a couple of movies. Great fucking character, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so anyway, yeah, Secondhand Lions. And then not long after that, I did Sin City and uh, Scanner Darkly with Richard Linklater. 
And uh, that was kind of my start. But before I did any of those things, I was doing anime. And the first anime, just to tie this up, that I ever did was a thing called Kimiguri Orange Road, gotcha. Summer's Beginning. And and uh, it was kind of this weird, like, psychic sci-fi love story. Yeah. And I did it for ADV Films, very early days of ADV Films. It was a one-off OVA, and, and he cast me as a lead. It took me like 17 hours of recording to do this whole thing. And that's how I cut my teeth on anime. And um, that would have been about 96. Right on. And then the bigger titles came after that, like Bubblegum Crisis 2040 and uh, Gasaraki, Louis the Rune Soldier. But yeah, yeah, that was all that early ADV stuff before. You know, it's funny, like at that time, Funimation had Dragon Ball. And that was it. And that's kind of what put them on the map. And ADV didn't have Dragon Ball, but they had everything else. Mm -hmm. And so they were cranking out content. Um, If you were watching anime in the early aughts or the late 90s, you were 90%. If you weren't watching Dragon Ball, you were probably watching an ADV related title because they had all the licenses for almost everything. It's crazy. But you got to do everything from like Giver. I mean, I have an anecdote for you because I I think you might have had a relative experience to this. I remember being a dumb shit kid having seen Giver and Giver 2 with Mark Hamill. And I loved him. Blows my fucking mind, right? And I go to like warehouse video down the street. I'm like, hey, can I buy Giver? And this dude starts mansplaining to me about how it's MacGyver. And I'm like, no, 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 it's Giver. He wears a suit and it's armor. Did you ever have anything where you're trying to explain a project you're in where people like know enough to be incredibly stupid to you in real life? Right. No, I don't know. I, that's that's a funny experience. But like the thing with anime titles back then is they sounded so like bizarre, like <laughs> yes. poony, like poony, uh, poony, pumpkin poemi. scissors. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just it's completely. And, and in some cases, the American distributor, the English language distributors had some leeway in how to title these things. But on other occasions, uh, the Japanese studios would 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 try to dictate that. But the problem was that they wouldn't always have a complete understanding of how that's going to land for yeah. an English audience. And there was a show called that we did called King of Bandit Jing. That, that's that's it. If you find it, that's what it's called in the English, you know, King of Bandit Jing. And we just were laughing like, what's what's the deal with that title? And they were like, well, we had to do it that way. Why? Because that's what they wanted us to do. But in, in reality, you would have translated that Jing, the Bandit King, right? Like there's a certain way that it makes sense, yeah. but it was sort of dictated. And so I think that's what happens a lot of times. And other times there's just cultural things. Yeah. There's a lot you can do to localize a script, but the title itself is a bit precious. And so uh, that can often come off as very odd and weird. Because some of the animes come across as like having a three sentence title when in actuality, like contextually, because, you know, I do a lot of depositions, people like a lot of the Asian dialects, it's interpretive. It's not translation because of the context and everything being so askew. Is that hard for you to kind of come in and try and distill truths? Are you ever like allowed to go like, um, I think that this might be better this way? Or are you just generally kind of dictated to? Well, you know, I think I think of us as kind of the last layer of translation that sometimes happens, because what you get is you, you get a when the you know when the american distribution whatever it is sentai or funimation when they get their materials their pieces from the japanese studios you, you know you're getting the video and you're getting the 
the audio tracks and you're getting scripts and the script you're getting is like the Japanese with a very crude translation. Like this is the script, right? Yeah. And and so, and then it goes through a script writing phase where someone who is the script writer for the English language version has to take the Japanese script and hopefully they also speak Japanese or they have, you know, a strong familiarity with the language and the culture. And that's the localization stage. And then, and then when you get it into the studio with the ADR director and the actor, now you're kind of making it fit. You're performing it. You're, you not only you're trying to fit the fit the animation and the lip flaps, but you're also saying, okay, does this make sense? And there's something that happens, I think, when an actor embodies a role over time. And, and if you ever like were to interview Sean Shamel, you would really get this this idea, which is that characters can begin to come alive inside of an actor in a certain sense. Yeah, and of course. Because the actor the, the actor's been playing the role for so long that the character's motivations become just kind of a second nature to the performer. Like you just understand your character. Yeah. And so what you try to do is you try to bring some of that to integrity to the to the recording process. And I guess that's a long way around of answering your question, which is that yes, there are times I think when something needs to be refined a little more. And and so that's the job of I think it's the ADR director together with the actor, particularly if it's an actor who's been around the block a few times and kind of knows the character. So, so yeah, yeah, that can happen. And then, you know, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. And, and, and if the fans will let us hear about it, if they, oh. if they don't like the way something went. The internet is so you know. fun that way, right? Man, man, no kidding. Now, What's funny is that we all started doing this at a time when we didn't think, you know, no one was sure if anybody would care about anime. And that seems weird to say now because it's such a huge, uh, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a really important part of a lot of people's media consumption. But oh, yeah. in the late 90s, it wasn't. It was, you know, at least from the ADV standpoint, it was Matt Greenfield and John Ledford. You know, Matt, he was kind of this closet anime geek and John was like a video store manager and they kind of got together and said, wouldn't it be cool? Like I'm spending a hundred bucks on a blue, on a laser disc with like two episodes and I know all these people that are into anime. Wouldn't it be cool if we could like acquire some of these and dub them and distribute them ourselves? It was a very mom and pop operation at that time. And, um, you know, he used to tell stories about doing these recording sessions in Houston on tape and then having to drive his car to Dallas where there was a different studio where they had, you know, where they were able to mix it and master it and then drive. I mean, there was just this whole process. I mean, it started pre-digital. Digital changed everything. Uh, but there was a time when they were still trying to dub these in a very, you know, primitive way. So, and so you're doing digital. I heard you saying that you are doing all of My Hero Academia from home, right? How do you get to work with an ADR director if you're, is it like a very solitary experience? Or are you working right. with another person? Well, now it, it's very interesting because, you know, in a studio, if I'm going in, I'm in a booth with a microphone, headphones. The ADR director's on the other side of the glass directing the session, and he's sitting right next to the engineer who is running the board and and uh, and and sort of making you know making the magic happen. And so that that stopped for a while. Yeah. And uh, but what what we've what we've discovered is that the technology is out there for the three of us to be together virtually, and for the actor to be at a home studio. And, and record those lines and then basically send that, send those files to the engineer. And so in a sense, we're all still doing the same work, but it's just, it's like not quite as efficient, but it's, we can still get it done. So can't argue with results, right? Right, right, right. And who knows, this whole thing could change, 
the way we do business going forward, oh, even yeah. after uh, COVID. I mean, it, 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 it might turn out that actually it's maybe cheaper to do it this way or something. Somebody will exactly. say, you know, I mean, I can tell you from my personal standpoint, if I'm traveling because I've got to shoot, I've got a location somewhere, I don't want to fly all the way back to Houston or to Dallas just to record a few hours for an anime project. I'd rather yeah. do it from where I am. And if I can do it from where I am in, in my hotel room, assuming I've got adequate, you know, uh, sound protection and whatever, which I can do, uh, then, then I'm going to choose that every time. So, yeah. you know, flexibility, you of know, course. gives us the freedom to do things differently. So, and you don't have to deal with leases and studios and everything. If everything's piecemeal, the higher ups can save a bunch of money that way and give you your freedom. That's a pretty, like, I, I think there'll always be studios, uh, just because they don't want to completely release all of that control. I, I, I think, yeah. you know what I mean? But like, who, I mean, 10 years, we're doing things now that 10 years ago were inconceivable, right? I mean, yeah. it's just the fact that you and I are, you know, having this meeting on this platform, you know, in the way that we are is, is, you know, technology is just, it's crazy. Pretty soon there'll be jetpacks and flying cars. Yeah. The novelty of video calling was always so cool and stuff like yeah. Star Trek. And then now it's like, oh, fuck, I, last thing I want to do is fucking FaceTime somebody. I've done it so many times. And it's like, wait, it's still right. really exciting though when you think about it. Like if I took right. some like bumpkin from 1776 and brought him to now, he'd be like, oh my gosh, my stars and garters. This is witchcraft. So we should appreciate it. <laughs> Look, if you were, if you were writing a show, like a television show, anywhere from the 50s to like the 80s about the future, you would absolutely, you would have certain touchstones. So like you, you couldn't do it without having video calling and some kind of a wireless telephone mm -hmm. situation, right? I mean, all of that was, those were the, those were the little gee whiz factors that made sci-fi sci-fi. And, and, and now, I mean, you know, unless you're talking about quantum physics, you know, it, it, yeah. because that's where you have to go. You have to dive deeper. You know, you talk about multiverse theory oh, and, yeah. and and time travel. These are all tropes, but it's, you know, it, it's not enough anymore to just have people whip out a communicator uh, and be like, oh, that's cool, man. That'd be cool right. if we could do that. Guess what? You know, we're there. Yeah. I remember so, seeing Prometheus and he throws those like two orbs that like scan everything. And I remember thinking that was the coolest shit. And my friend's like, so what? I'm like that, that's like a really cool future thing. They're like, not really. Like you know, geo coding yeah. is not that hard. I'm like, great. I'm the luddite now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that's right. So uh, I have a question to ask you. I was talking to your pal Gene Jones, who you've worked on or with a few times. Texas Cotton, uh, No Country, uh, obviously Cyst, uh -huh. and he was talking about his physical prep when it comes to getting in character. Do you physically prep at all when you do your anime stuff? Because here's a, a thing I noticed. I watched a video of Sean Schemmel and you doing voiceover during a fight and he is screaming and he is shaking and he is red and you're sitting there with your hands in your pockets like nah, pulling this amazing voice out with low physical effort, probably no aneurysm. Right. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I, I can't I, I do feel like some of those sessions that you're referring to. I love that video, by the way. Hilarious. It, 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 it took a lot to actually make that. It, it's not as simple as them just shooting us yeah. uh, while we're recording. Uh, and I can go into that if you want. But sure. Um, I do get physical sometimes, but I, I don't know. I'm 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 so tuned into like what's happening on the screen. And I, I don't know, for me, if we're talking about anime, I almost have like a sense sometimes, especially if it's a long session, that's, it's almost like a holodeck experience where I'm, I'm in the, the, I'm, I'm in the scene, like, yeah. right. I'm, I'm actually there. And, um, and it's not some weird metaphysical thing. It's just, it's just a sense of like the storytelling where you like 
Where's my character standing? What's the size of the room? How far away are, are the, the other characters while I'm speaking? And I, I, because I'm not, I'm not just doing voiceover in a, in a closet somewhere. Like, I feel like it, it needs to sound like it's, it's appropriate for what's happening in that scene. Oh yeah. And, uh, but I hear it in my ear. And of course we have the opportunity for playback because we'll do it. And the engineer will be like, okay. And then you'll hear what you just did and you'll think, ah, that's not quite right. Or, or, or save it. That's good. Yeah. I don't have another one in me better than that. But as far as on-screen stuff, like Gene's talking about, you know, I feel like as I'm getting dressed, I'm putting on the wardrobe and I'm looking in the, you know, I'm, I'm seeing myself in the mirror and I'm transforming in a certain sense uh, in, into some semblance of the character. I'm not totally method like some some actors, but but there is a sense of just like, what does it feel like to just be this person? And uh, of course, that's that's a lot more accessible in in sort of more realistic yeah. type of work than anime. I have no idea what it feels like to be an intergalactic, uh, ancient destroyer God. I mean, that's just, you just have to have fun with that at the end of the day. That's one of the things I also really appreciate about your attitude. I heard a quote, uh, we're getting paid to dress up and play pretend. That's an amazing job. And that seems like everybody yeah. on Cyst is just like, yeah, this is rad. Like, yeah, it's a story about a cis monster. It's just rad. It's fun. You guys like yeah. working together. Can you talk about uh, like just the synergy of the set? Well, no, I mean, I, I we had a great time working on cis. That was, I think it was unexpected. I mean, I had worked with with those guys, with Tyler and, and, and George and those guys on Texas Cotton, which you referenced, which I think he was trying to make that a bit of a, a more serious kind of experience, a role. And, and certainly uh, George uh, uh, was, was really, I think, wanting to... Uh, kind of test out some acting chops and, and, uh, he's, a, he's such an earnest guy and, 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 and really has a love and a heart for, 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 for the, for the, you know, for acting. And he's a dentist, like he's, he is, he is what he is. And, he, but he, he loves this side thing. It's this, this thing in his life. And, and so it's hard when you're working around somebody like George, not to be infected by his enthusiasm. Um, and, uh, so that's a big part of it. The other thing is that like, I think, Reading the script for Cyst, you're you're thinking, well, this is ridiculous. Of course, I mean, it's just it, and it's it's gross, and it's not gross in a gross out soft seven kind yeah. of way. It's it's gross in kind of a I don't know about this. I don't. <laughs> that's I don't. I'm I'm not sure. I want to uh you know be anyway, but um uh but so you're so you know i talked to tyler and he's like i've got this role for you and 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 would you come out and do it and it was in baltimore and and i was like yeah man like i'll come play with you guys like this 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 looks like silly fun you know and uh and i and i got out there and uh, i've worked on silly fun movies before but there was something about this that was different first of all it was a like a period piece so there's yeah. a little bit of a like a time a period kind of a setting that was very cool and then there was this kind of a this offbeat style i don't know how to describe it but it, it just it was it was uh it really was like walking into that world right yeah. there's just something very charming about it and uh and then of course we had you know we had a few scenes that were off site there was uh, i think a, a big scene we did a day in a, a local diner there in baltimore and uh and then of course you've got uh, you've got our our other lead actors, Ava Haberman, Greg. I mean, and they were all kind of delightful in their in their own unique way. And then there's people you don't see. Some of our uh, Ina Chokol, who is the I hope I said her name right, but she is uh, she was the 
She did all the makeup. She wasn't the effects department, but she actually turns out to be a, a quite a gifted effects makeup person as well. Um, and then there were obviously the the studio that did the the effects. There was just a ton of love and uh, sort of love for cinema and yeah. for kind of that classic era of uh, of 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 the monster movie. Yeah. Uh, and it was unexpected. It was just like you read the script and you're like, "How are you going to pull this off? Is this is anybody going to?" So so. I had a ton of fun and I never, I was not, you know, you see, you, you do your job and you, and then you go home and you're wondering, well, how's it all going to cut together? Right. Yeah. You know? So I was really delighted to see, to start to see like the footage and the trailers. I was like, Oh, that looks really good. It does. Right. And then we started when I noticed that there, it, it started to have some online screenings with festivals and there were some reviews and they were great. I was yeah. like, Oh wow. That's so great. Cause you never know. Sometimes you're working on something you think this is going to be, golden yep and the reviewers hate it or they ignore it it's one of the worst things is you do something you think is fantastic and it's just like that's the big anxiety of the digital age right yeah. you could you could make yeah. the perfect movie but if nobody sees it who cares yeah that's yeah, precisely and uh so in any case uh um i'm 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 thrilled for tyler and for george i would certainly jump at a chance to work with those guys again because they're they're having fun they're making movies and having fun it's the reason that we it's the reason that we do this. It's the reason that you do your podcast and that I, you know, and I show up and hit my mark and say my lines is because we love telling stories. And, um, uh, and, and it's the kind of, it's the kind of filmmaker that I think I like working with. I, I love the kind of like kind of young independent filmmaker that's got big ideas too big. You yeah. know, you're like, that's never going to work, but let's try. Let, exactly. You know, it's that kind of that mix of like, are you sure you think we can pull this off? And then the magic of movies, man, it's like people coming together to collaborate, you know, dozens or hundreds of people to make to make what you see on screen um, resonate. So uh, even a small film like Cyst, I mean, has a lot of moving parts and a lot of people trying to make it happen. So that's just fun. I love it. With that intimate kind of set and also the lower budget, I mean, there's a certain degree of like ownership that I think that a lot of the performers get to have. And you all come in with it's this true. acceptance, like this is nonsense, but it doesn't invalidate it as art. You can be art and right. nonsense at the same time. Did your history right. in anime, which has a lot of absurd elements to it, inform your performance right. in this at all? Just to be like, yeah, I accept it and we're moving on. This is weird, but I like that it's weird. Well, you know, there's a, th this character is th that I play insist he's, he's kind of in a style of, even though he's not specifically, but he, he's in the style of this character that I just love from movies, which is kind of a, kind of a, a noirish, kind of a gumshoe detective yeah. type. Now he's not a detective. He's like an, he's like an investigator from the local patent office or yeah. something, but it's still the same vibe. And, um, and I've, I've done that in anime a few times and I love those roles there's an anime I did a couple of years ago. It's called Psychopaths. And I played a character that's, again, a crusty, kind of a crusty old detective that's been around the block. I just love that vibe. I love like Jonathan Banks in Breaking Bad, you know, Mike Ehrmantraut. I don't know. So maybe that's kind of like my my dream role or something is to, to, to play a role. Uh, like that uh, in a major film, but, but referencing what we were talking about before in terms of just the, you know, having fun on a set like this. And it, there is a, there's a certain amount of ownership as you pointed out. And a lot of it comes from the fact that you feel like this is an independent film. Like we've all got to, we've all got to own our role here. Like we've all got a job to do. And uh, sometimes on a bigger picture, there's so many people and you feel like when you walk on set, 
you're just a cog in a giant machine and you're yep. easily replaceable. And, and, uh, and there's a certain pressure. It's almost kind of like, what can I really contribute to this? And you do, you know, you, you, you bring it, but, but there's something about working on an independent film where you feel, you also feel like, I know when I'm working on an independent film, I feel like way more freedom to have a discussion right, yeah. with a writer or a director to say, hey, I'm, I've been reading through this and I, I'm not sure this is working out the way it should. What do you think? Maybe yeah. we can come up with something better. And on a, on a big budget film or an episodic, there's really very little room for that. It's, it's, it's very, it's very planned in advance. You are like the last person mm -hmm. that thing will go through eight or 12 rewrites before you even see it. And then you'll get your copy and there'll be more rewrites before you actually shoot it. Yep. And it's kind of out of your hands. So it feels good to be on an independent film where you have the freedom to kind of collaborate and you feel like part of what's up on the screen is, you know, something that, I contributed to more than just my performance. So yeah, and then you had, I mean, tons of experience with TV. You did four seasons of Walking Dead. That it's a crazy shooting schedule. I know that Sis was done in an incredibly small time frame. Did that, you know, TV experience help you in getting things going, being prepared in advance, and just moving through this material? Right. I mean, I, I I've gotten to a place where I feel like I, I I'm what I'm not going to do is show up unprepared, yeah. and uh, I feel like my 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 stock and trade, my calling card is somebody that can show up uh, and do, because, you know, I, as, as a lot of us who are in this business, who are not what you would call household names. And so certainly those of us who are not geographically located on the West coast, we're not given a lot of, what am I trying to say here? There, there's, there's just not a ton of like, you, you don't, ex, you don't show up expecting someone that you hired out of Dallas or Atlanta or new Orleans to have, first of all, they don't necessarily have a West Coast team, you know, like yeah. a lot of actors do. And there's just a certain, I think we've always felt in the regions, like there's something that we have to prove, you know, when we show up, we, we, we don't get the leeway of being odd or eccentric. Like yeah. we don't, we don't, we don't have the permission to kind of not, you know, to kind of hang out in our trailer and not show up, you know, yeah. at the set on time. Like we don't, we don't have that leeway. Yeah. We, we can't afford to be unprofessional because your shots are fewer and far between. You don't just get the volume of, OK, I fucked up four auditions this week, but I have 15 more next week. So who cares? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. You know, I, I had a conversation a few years ago with a, a good dear friend of mine in the business who is West Coast based. And he was busting my chops because he was like, what's your brand? You know, you need to brand. You're like, I know what my brand is and this, and you know, and that is important. If you're an L.A. actor, it's important to know what you look like and know what how you're seen and. I think it's important for any actor, but his complaint to me, as we were having, you know, multiple beers and kind of commiserating about the business, uh, was that you go out for everything. And my response was basically, I have to go out for everything. I have to go out for roles that I don't think I'm right for. If my agent calls me and says, Hey, they want to read you for this, like 65 year old father of, you know, of adult kid, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not I'm not even near that age. Why would you in there like, but they really like your work. They saw your demo reel. Okay, whatever. That would never happen in LA. Yeah. Uh, and so there have been roles that I've gotten where I've said to my agent, like, hey, I don't, are you sure they want to see me for this? Because that's not really my, what I think is my thing. And they're like, yeah, they, you know, it's this casting director, you know, it's what's her name, and, you know? And I'm like, yeah, well, I know her. I've been into her office, you know, a thousand times. But anyway, it's like, yeah, we have to, we have to be prepared to, to sometimes really step outside of 
our comfort zone and, and even what you would think that how we present physically, like if I were in LA, I would have to really pare down my look and like be really clear yeah. about the kinds of roles that I'm, I'm going out for. You would be only um, grizzled and, cop only ever never read anything else and try and do it. Well, as much yeah, as you, you know, be. sort of big, uh, you know, obviously yeah. I'm six, four. So there's always that bigness factor. And there's, there's always this kind of like, you know, lovable oaf, uh, you know, coach kind of, you know, if you think of that kind of the, uh, that you. old TV show, oh, like those guys, show. you know, you know, guy's guy, you know, old man's man kind of guy, yeah. you know, and I do read for those kind of roles when they pop up here. But um, I, I read, I read for a role a couple of weeks ago on a show that was like an eccentric art collector yeah. with an English, with an English accent. I'm into right, so it. It's kind of a, you know, eccentric art collector. And he's talking about this kind <laughs> of painting. You know, it's like, eh. you know, like in my mind, like if I'm casting that, I'm not, I'm not looking at me for that kind of role. I have a certain kind of range of actors and physical types that I'm looking for. Um, and that happens by the way, that's not, I mean, people yeah. do get typecast and, and, and some, some actors complain about it and some actors take that check to the bank because exactly. they understand, you know, like how the business works. Yeah, Michael Caine often oh. said of his role in the Jaws franchise, when people talk shit about it, he was like, yeah, you know what? That uh, that movie role paid for a house. So really don't care yeah. what your thoughts are. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. There's a certain idealization, I think, that non-actors and fans have about what we do uh, that is is it's noble. It's a noble idea about what actors do and, and about what their role is. It's almost like you have to fulfill this kind of embodiment of, yeah. of this, uh, I, you know, this sort of um, epic status that, yeah. that you're given. And at the rea in the reality, this is the most of us, the average SAG actor, uh, you know, the average, in other words, the average actor who's in the union, uh, in, in our, in our major unions uh, makes less than $15,000 a year on average, right? You hear about these 10 million, $20 million yeah. paydays at the top range. That is, that is like, that is like the 1% of the 1%. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of us are, are, you know, I always tell people I'm a blue collar actor. Like yeah. that's, that's my, that's my deal. I, I'm a blue collar actor. And I, while you've, you may have seen or heard me in a, a project that you're a fan of and you like my work and I'm grateful for that. I'm also like hustling for voice work. Like yeah. not even just anime. I'm talking about like radio commercials, right? Like one of my biggest account clients is uh, he does uh, ads for LASIK places oh, right all on. over the country. Yeah. And so, you know, again, that's, that's, that's food on the table exactly. and, uh, and, and mortgage payment getting paid. So, and if you don't take a role like that, you don't get the opportunity to, to read for your next thing. As I said, you know, a lot of people get it twisted. Like George Clooney was in a return of the killer tomatoes and he was in grizzly too. People were like, that's the ER guy. He couldn't read for ER if he was working minimum wage at Shakey's pizza. That's the, the right. true nature of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really nice when you achieve a certain level and you can afford to maybe go take six months to train yourself, to go out to a dude ranch and learn how to ride horses and be a cowboy and, and, or hire a personal trainer to get you, you know, to that buff level that you need to be in order the to marble play buffness. Yeah. Whatever. Fucking right? star like, Lord who wears a jacket the entire time. Why did he have to get buff? That's ridiculous. <laughs> right. I mean, I love the idea of that, Jake. And I, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I think actors that can do that, that's so great. I mean, like, I'm so <laughs> happy for them. It's cute. And it's great. But yeah. like most of us uh, who are, are pursuing this for a living, we, ha we have to, we really have to hustle and, you know, no apologies. Uh, some of us don't stay in it. I, listen, I've got a good friend who's an actor. He's actually working. He's working on this other project with me right now. Uh, it's an episodic, um, but he owns a restaurant here go. in, in uh, the Dallas area. And it's a, it's a lunch place and it's fantastic. 
and uh, it's called Tim Cup. Tin Cup. And uh, Damon Carney is his name. He's been in a lot of things, but but he's got a day job. He he owns and runs a restaurant. Hats off to him. But it's doing what you have to do. Yeah. You know. And I'd be remiss. So I've kept you way longer, but I have one question I have to ask. You're talking about being a hardworking actor, taking work wherever you can. That's what lands you in under control or troll world. Is it, I mean, you've, by this point, you've already seen your voice come out of a purple cat God. Is it weird to see your voice come out of a beautiful German woman eating garbage? (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, that was, that was interesting and strange. And, um, I, I was, you know, I first got that job, I thought, oh, you want me to do the voice of the troll, right? I just assumed that Ava would do her own lines uh, as herself, just yeah. kind of, you know, insane or whatever. And they're like, no, no, yeah, you're going to do <laughs> you're gonna do her lines as well. I was like, really? Wow. Okay. Okay. And I think it works. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a charming exercise, you know, and I, I think it works. That whole movie's fucking amazing. You got Vegeta narrating and you're like, this yeah, is exactly. rad. Uh, Chris, exactly. sorry. Yeah, it brought together a weird uh, kind of a, a cross section of actors from uh, from uh, from Dallas, Austin, and Houston. Believe it or not, we kind of converged on a studio in Austin to get that done. So, uh, but again, that was Tyler. Tyler directed the ADR on yeah. that as well. So he's kind of a common thread. He's kind of our I don't know our our Roger Corman, our our or whatever. You know, yeah. he's like our our independent uh, film guy. He's the uh, I know a guy guy, if you will, because he yeah. you know, he'd worked with every one of you, it seems, in some form or fashion before this movie gets made. And that's what's great. I mean, we talked at length about you know the casting process. It doesn't make sense to start over from scratch each time you do a project if you already have a vested yeah. interest in a relationship with people and the reliance on them. I mean, like, I listen to yeah. you. I hear a master craftsman. I listen to Gene. Fuck, dude. I li- we, Gene and I talked for like 20 minutes outside the interview about just the, the craft of it. Like, why would I Gene ever is, want to hire yeah. anybody but you, but Gene, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think there's some, uh, particularly with a with a filmmaker who's got like a, a very strong vision of what they want to accomplish and the kind of stories they want to tell. You see this with the Coen brothers a lot that they like to return to the same. They, it's almost like um, it's almost like the idea that you have a company. Yes. Of actors, much like a, a troop, yeah. much like a theater somewhere, a troop of actors, you know, and, and, and they, they kind of share your vision. They, they support your, your vision and they, they, they also get it yeah. and they start to, you learn to speak the same language. Um, but you see this also with like Christopher Guest, uh, you know, who, who returns to kind of the same company of actors. And I love that idea. And, and uh, uh, so I, I, you know, of course, as an actor, you always want to keep working, yeah. but you know, it, it, there's also something to be, something to be said for if Tyler calls and says, Jason, I got a thing. I'm going to be like, when, do, when does it start? Where do we, you know, you know, there's not, there's not a sense of, okay, who are you? And yeah. like, why don't you send me samples of your work and like, show me your demo, you know, like, you well, know, I skip out on this opportunity you, to work with you. Yeah, that kind of thing. Right. Like, you know, you like, okay, I, I, I get this. I get your vibe. And so, so yeah, yeah. You, you always, I think as an actor, you want to fall in. There's, the, you know, the old, the old saw of, you know, and an actor who is successful, you know, you, you want to get to a place where you're doing like three projects a year and you do one for the, one for the travel, one for the art and one for the money, you know, yep. that, you know, that this is kind of like down the road, kind of when you, when you have that kind of pull, but how many um, movies take place in Europe just because somebody wanted to take a trip on somebody else's dime? It's crazy. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, there's different reasons, but you know, even in the United States, like my favorite place to shoot is New Orleans. I would, I mean, I love Texas and I live in Texas, but I would, I would go to New Orleans in a heartbeat. 
to to make a movie or or shoot something because I love the city. Yeah. So in that case, I you know I get to have my cake and eat it too. I'm usually you know I'm, I'm making something that pays the bills, but I'm also in one of the great cities of the world. So. Right on. Jason, this was a lot of fun. I have like 5,000 questions I could ask you I didn't even get to. Wow. I've, I've carried you over. If you ever want to come back and peddle your wares, anime or otherwise, I'm happy to have you because you made a great impression with me and I think our audience is going to absolutely love you. Can you plug yourself so that they know where to find you? Because I've been really bad about that with the other interviews. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, You can uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Mr. Jason Douglas. And you can find me on Instagram uh, at, what am I on Instagram? I think I'm Jason Douglas 2040, 2040. And what else is out there? Oh yeah, there's a Facebook page, uh, Jason Douglas fans or something like that. So those are the kind of the big three. And I know there's other platforms out there, but I don't have, I just, I don't know. I think I'm on Snapchat and I think I've never posted anything. I think I started the account. I don't know. I think I still have a a TikTok out there and a Vero and all this stuff. And I know my old band has a MySpace. Apparently people said, I was going to say, I've got, I had a MySpace (laughs) page back in the day. Like that, that was, that's where this all started, I guess. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, that's gone. Yeah. Don't follow me on MySpace. Please don't. Won't be updated yeah, yeah. anytime soon. But go see, I don't know, go see Sist or download it or rent it if you can find it. Uh, yeah. it it's a its a ton of fun. And uh, it is is—it is just old school creature feature magic. It's so—it's—it's it's a ton of fun. So check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, sir. Thanks, Jake. Man, that's a wrap on Sistmas, guys. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Not just because I enjoyed the underlying source material of the movie Sis, but also I genuinely appreciated and respected each person I got to interview. This was not me putting on a fake face and being like, oh, let me just move on to my next question. These are real people who have a real dedication to their craft, a real passion for it. It's fun to talk to. Each of these individuals I got to talk to way longer than they ever had committed to time with me. You know, some of them cutting into other stuff. Honestly, it meant the world just because they were so warm and kind and it was so nice to have that personal connection with people and let them know that their art was appreciated considering you know who knows when cyst is going to be having a theatrical release and who knows when the world's going to go back to normal it was a very interesting element of the show and i'm very happy that we had got this opportunity and i'm also very happy that we were able to give you something that was a little bit of a change of pace on the show slashers you know 2021 is set to be a fucking crazy year for us we have some amazing new co-hosts that I'm very excited about. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with our old ones, but you know these are people who are passionate, excited, eager, prepared, just like all these people from CIST. And you know the sky's the limit with what we can do with this show. And it's all because of people like you. Just listening helps. Being a Patreon patron helps. Leaving us a review helps. Just letting me nestle up inside of your ear and put my essence inside of you. I really appreciate it. So this is Jake. Goodbye and good die.